This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, I'm here with Clint Gibbler, the head of security research for R2C, the company behind 7Grep, a popular open source static analysis security scanning tool used by teams all over the world. Prior to R2C, Clint was a research director at the NCC Group, where he helped companies implement security automation and DevSecOps best practices, as well as performed pen tests on large enterprises and startups. He also writes for the TLDRSEC newsletter, which curates the best security research content, including tools, blog posts, and conference talks, which you can check out at tldrsec.com. Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. Glad to be here. So I'm really curious about SEMGREP. That's the basis of R2C, and I was hoping you could give us a little bit of an origin story about that tool and really how it came about and what are the big benefits that teams are getting from it today. Sure. Yeah, so SEMGREP is an open source static analysis tool. So I guess the core difference from some of their stuff out there, just so you can like sort of mentally put it in a box, like how does it fit with other things is, so there are some open source static analysis tools that tend to be a bit simple and focus on just one language at a time. And then there's some commercial tools, which are very heavyweight and slow and take maybe hours or days to scan big code bases. And you can think of SEMGREP kind of like as in the middle. So it's a lot more powerful and supports many languages versus just sort of one or two, like most open source tools. But unlike commercial tools, it's very fast and sort of customizable and flexible. Whereas the sort of traditional static analysis tools, they can do some sort of powerful analyses, but they tend not to fit well into sort of modern CICD pipelines where developers want feedback quickly, right, on their PRs. They don't want to wait hours or days before merging in. So that's sort of, I can we can talk in more detail about sort of how it works and how the trade-offs. But at a high level, I would say it's trying to be fast, extensible, customizable, and handles every language that your company has, even if it's like 20 languages. So how it started uh, is actually kind of a funny story. So it started as SGREP, which is uh, stands for Semantic GREP. So the idea was Yuan Padalu, one of our lead program analysis engineers, he uh, was actually the first program analysis hire at Facebook. So way back in the day, and inside Facebook, he built a series of tools that they used to enforce thousands of security best practices within Facebook at scale. And he actually ended up leaving Facebook, and then R2C ended up hiring him a few years later. And the company at the time was building a bunch of different products, a bunch of experiments, very like you know early stage startup trying to figure out what to build. And during a hackathon, Yuan remembered his tool Scrap, and he was like, "Oh, like what if I just made this a bit better and sort of demoed this?" And uh, he ended up losing the hackathon, so he did not win that hackathon. But it ended up being like, oh, this is actually such a cool, useful tool. Let's like invest a bit more resources in it. And now it's sort of like the flagship thing the company builds. So it's it's something we often like to tease him about that, um, you know, if you don't win a hackathon, then maybe whatever you do is going to be like the next focus of the company. But yeah, so it was Sgrep. It's been renamed Semgrep. And if you actually go to GitHub, Facebook has a repo called PFFF, like P-F-F-F, and one of the tools inside it is Sgrep. 
And then that has since been renamed SEMGREP and now it's like infinitely better than it used to be. But that's sort of the origin. That's a really funny story. The fact that he lost the hackathon and then it became the flagship part of the company. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. This pattern is pretty common though, where you have people working inside of a large tech company, building software, seeing some problem that they're solving, and then they build a novel solution and start a company around it. I'm curious, like, do you think that's representative of a shift that we're just seeing in security as a whole? Because we see this a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think it is a really interesting trend. In some respects, I think it makes sense. So if you think of like a couple of factors, like one is that big companies are um, leaning a bit more into open source because they want to encourage people to sort of share their work for things that are not their sort of business value add. They don't necessarily care about open sourcing it. So for example, say OS Query and Facebook, it's like, well, Facebook is not trying to productize OS Query. So of course, open source it. And then at the same time, like if you're building something that solves a problem your company has, probably similar companies have a similar problem or like if they're dealing with problems at scale, like, yeah, you're not building it for no reason, right? So I think sort of the leaning into open source and then also like you're solving a real problem. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, OS query, SEMgrep, stream alert, right? There's many examples. Oh, you name dropped my old project. Love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Also, it's this shift to developers really operating at scale to solve security problems. And I think that's a little bit of what we see with SEMgrep as well. And I'm really curious around the customization capabilities of SEMgrep. Could you talk a little bit about that and why people customize it typically? Yeah. So I think sort of the meta observation is that when you, or at least when I, and I think many people evaluate modern security tools, you have sort of like two, well, there's many questions, but sort of the two that come most obviously to mind is one is like, what sort of value do I get out of the box, like basically for free, whether that's built in security checks or detections or whatever it is. And then the other is like, how much can I customize it? Because I think something that's very customizable, but provides no out of the box value is like, yeah, that's good, but I'm gonna have to spend like person months to get any value from this. But at the same time, if it's not very customizable, I think what people realize is that every company, every environment, every series of like code repos, for example, are very different. So ultimately, like the real value is in customizing it, at least from what we hear from users is that they're like, yeah, the out of the box for us, it would be security rules. So basically patterns that look for vulnerable source code. So we have, you know, 1600 and growing checks out of the box that you get for free and are open source. But what we hear is that people who write their own rules to look for, say, company-specific anti-patterns, those tend to be super high signal and very valuable. So for example, they're like, okay, whenever we have like a, an admin route in our web app, we need this decorator. And if it's not there, like it's a serious access control bug. Like no static analysis tool vendor will have that rule built in because they haven't seen your code. They don't know how it works. But if you have a tool that's super easy to customize, you can codify that in you know a few minutes or something. So a number, not all static analysis tools let you customize the rules or write your own. Many do, but usually it's like you have to spend days or weeks learning this pretty complicated domain-specific language. And sort of the trick or the insight for SEMgrep is the rules are basically like the source code that you're targeting with a few abstractions. So basically, if you're trying to write a rule for Python code, the SEMgrep rule is going to look like 90% Python, like if not more. 
with like one or two abstractions. But yeah, you can basically go from zero to competent SEMGRIP rule writer in like an hour. Whereas I've written rules for like most of these tools, like when I was a security consultant helping other companies. And usually it would take sort of days or weeks to get up to speed. And that's someone with like a static analysis and security background. So it's fine. And they're very powerful and they're good tools. It's just like, I don't know any developer who's written a custom check for any of these, any most popular static analysis tools. But a number of companies have said that most of their internal SimGrep rules are actually written by developers, not the security team, which I think is pretty exciting. That's really, really cool. Is there a way to contribute these back or are people just doing it within GitHub or? Yeah, so we do have a, a repo on GitHub, sort of return to corpse slash SimGrep rules. And yeah, it's just, so SimGrep rules are actually just YAML under the hood. So yeah, we have people contribute rules to the public registry via just like pull requests. Yeah, every week or every other week or so. Recently, people have been pushing a lot of infrastructure as code rules, which is pretty cool. So like Terraform, CloudFormation, things like that. That's interesting. I actually didn't realize that SEMGRAP and RTC is being used for infrastructure as code. And I assume it can do configuration as code as well. Like Chef Puppet, mm-hmm. things like that. That's really cool. Yeah, so I think the meta goal of SEMGRAP is like basically any config file, text file, source code, like pip file or dependency management, basically anything that's text, we want to be the best, fastest, easiest tool for analyzing it. Yeah, so we have checks for like Dockerfile, Kubernetes config, Terraform, Bash, Solidity for smart contracts, and also, you know, like uh, JSON, YAML, and sort of like your traditional like JavaScript, Python, Golang, blah, 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 like all the normal programming languages. So I think within, we already have maybe 20 or more supported sort of languages and formats. And I would say probably by the end of this year, or at latest the end of next year, I think basically almost any text file you can probably analyze with SEMGREP and do pretty well. Like maybe we won't handle like Fortran or like, I don't know, Agda or some like very niche language. Maybe it'll take us a little while, but I think we'll get to like, you know, most of that sort of long tail curve soon. I mean, we're already there for a lot of things, but... That's awesome. It sounds like a really exciting project. So tell me a little bit about R2C. So when did, when did the company start? What's the company's mission? Tell me a little bit about the product on top of the open source tool, things like that. Yeah. So (laughs) I don't think I'm the best person to talk about the company's origin. So I'm not one of the co-founders. So I I may butcher some of the origin story. But I think it started because two of the founders were sort of uh, entrepreneurs in residence at Redpoint. And they were helping evaluate a bunch of sort of security startup ideas. And they were like, hey, you know, if we really want to have a big impact, we should start a company that sort of solves an important problem domain. And they spent, I think, a year or two evaluating a bunch of different things uh, before sort of settling on what R2C does now. In terms of a company mission, I, I actually wrote it down because I was like, I'm going to forget it and then uh, they'll make fun of me uh, when they listen to it. But the company mission is to profoundly improve software security and reliability and safeguard human progress. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but I like it because sort of the safeguarding human progress part, I think is just sort of acknowledging the fact that so much relates to tech these days, right? So like, I guess supply chains or your food getting to you, like hospitals, smart grid, like I guess the sort of ransomware attack on the sort of oil refineries that made gas prices go up. Like basically there's nothing in modern life that is not touched by technology. And ideally we want to help protect this so that, you know, our parents and friends and family can have sort of just like normal happy lives and not have to worry about, I don't know, 
not being able to eat because of supply chain issues or things like that. And sort of like the profoundly part is for like, we don't want to make a little bit of difference. We want to make it like significantly better. Ideally, unrecognizably better. Like, oh man, things are so much better than they used to be. That's good. That's a, uh, it's a very just cause as Simon Sinek would say. I don't know if you've read any of his books, but... Yeah, I've read some of his books. Yeah, I like him. So tell me a little bit about the offering of R2C. Like, so what does R2C offer in addition to the open source? Yeah, so the engine is open source and uh, many of the sort of rules, so the security checks that come out of the box are open source. So if you're a security professional or developer who just like wants to scan your code, whether it's open source or private, you can do that as many times as you want, as often as you want. So we're trying to make like an amazing tool that we don't cripple for individual users. But if you are a like a business, for example, where you're like, cool, SEMGRIP is awesome. I want to scan all of my hundred or thousand or thousands of repos. And I want to scan every pull request. And I want sort of like a dashboard and metrics. And I want to be able to sort of see trends over time, like which security vulnerabilities are occurring the most often and in which repos and you want integrations into like Jira and Slack. And basically, like, if you're an individual person, SimGrip is an amazing standalone tool. But if you want to roll it out in a company, there's a lot of things you're probably going to have to build to operationalize. Like you probably want pull request comments, you might want Slack notifications, there's like, so much stuff that like you could build yourself, but we're just building it like really well. So we're trying to sort of be the I guess, buy a uh, part of the build versus buy. And there actually are a number of companies who already have a very complex CI/CD pipeline that they already hook a bunch of tools into, and they already have like all this automation and dashboarding, and they're not paying us anything, but they're using SEMGRIP to secure their company. So you know we're happy. So actually, Slack gave a DefCon talk about, hey, here's how we built our entire security scanning like internal like our AppStack team invested in this platform, which basically their sort of CI/CD team had built this amazing thing, and then they're like, cool, and we use SEMGRIP for all these other things. Um, so they don't pay us anything at all, but they're using it to secure Slack, which is a multi-billion dollar company. And you know that makes us happy. If people use SEMGRIP and uh, get value of it, that's great. And for people who want a lot of the infrastructure around it and don't want to have to build it or maintain it, we have that as well. And there's other stuff we're going to build, but that's sort of where we are uh, right now. That's awesome. And it's really awesome to see these tools come about in a way that allow teams to take a more developer-oriented approach to security, especially at scale. And this operationalization of tools is something that's typically really hard. So it's awesome to see a company spin up to take a tool that's really useful and make it even more useful for big companies. At the end of the day, we want security teams just to focus on security and not the operational side. And it seems like that's a lot of what y'all are focused on. So I want to switch gears slightly and talk a little bit about the intersection of AppSec and DNR. So the thing that's really interesting that I've experienced in my career is that you typically have like these silos in security where it's like the AppSec people are working over here and securing their application, then the DNR team are kind of working over here. But I'm curious on your thoughts on the intersection of these two practices, because for something like Log4j that just came out, there is a really strong intersection where the AppSec team has to make sure that we're not you know, vulnerable anymore while the DNR team is like, were we actually affected by that vulnerability? So I'm curious around what's been your experience with interfacing with DNR teams as an AppSec professional? Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree with you that I think in most companies and probably most of the time still, those uh, the application security and DNR teams are pretty 
separate and maybe they, uh, I guess, pass each other in the halls sometimes, or like maybe they sort of talk a little bit, but yeah, I think historically those have been pretty separate, but yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, log for J or sort of log for shell example, because I think that's a really interesting example of, you know, sort of coming at the problem from two sides. Like, so on the one side, you're like, okay, cool. Like given all of our applications and external attack surface, like where could somebody have gone in? But then at least in medium and large companies, you probably don't even know everything that you run. Like if there's many different development teams, many things have been spun up over years, like you probably don't fully know everything you have. So you are also like, well, like have we been exploited and where and when and where are people inside our network? So yeah, I think this is a pretty cool example of how you can attack the situation from both angles. So one is like, okay, cool. Where do we see maybe someone has got an initial foothold and can we see them pivoting and like where do they come in from? And then it's like, oh, I see they landed on the service, but you know, we didn't even know this service existed. Okay, cool. Now we need to track that back to see what sort of source code is potentially affected and then fix it there. And you can also come, I guess, from the outside in perspective, where like where's all of our applications? Okay, cool. Which do we think are potentially exploitable? Let's fix that, but also let's look at sort of those services in production to see have they actually been exploited. So I guess you could figure out outside in, where do we want to focus our detection response efforts based on where we think could have been exploited and then sort of inside out from like, cool, we've seen potential like successful exploitation here, which means let's figure out sort of the application code responsible for that. So it's kind of a cool outside in and inside out thing that um, I guess has always been there, but it just seemed like more evident, at least to me, was sort of the recent kerfluffle. A big part of detection is logging. So I'm curious, like as an AppSec professional, have you ever really used the logs generated from the application in a useful way? Or how do you typically interface with that? Because some people just see it and it's like, it's way too noisy. There's no like consistency to this. But have you gotten value from those logs before, like from the application itself? I personally haven't spent a lot of time with that, to be honest. But I did do some like one project at NCC Group, for example, where there was a bug in the client's code which caused accounts in some edge cases to be merged or like one user could see the sort of private info of another user and some sort of like esoteric sort of like edge case fall throughs and sort of their login logic. And helping them with that project did <laughs> impress upon me the importance of logs. And because uh, that's basically when we needed to disclose what had happened, we needed to be like, okay, cool. Like how many times did this happen and to who and like which accounts do we no- need to notify? Um, so I was like, oh man, I never placed, at least for me, such an importance on logs, but I was like, man, this is so critical. I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, it does. Because I think application security logs are, or actually what I should say, just application logs itself can be really useful for things like Log4j where we're logging things out and we're able to get the full sort of trace of the attack. Right, because we want to be able to model it all the way down to the box itself. So if someone comes in, exploits a box that's vulnerable, we want to be able to capture that on all the layers. So on the network layer, on the load balancer layer, on the application, the host, the network, the SSH, like everything should be instrumented because we want to be able to tell a story of exactly what happened. So the application logs are a really key part of that too. So it's also a reason why people would want to collect like Kubernetes logs, for example. Um, being able to see like new containers coming up and which versions of those containers are running and, and the permissions and all these other things. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't spent as much time thinking about this in detail, but I was listening to either like a talk or a podcast, I think with uh, John Melton a bit ago, who he built like this OWASP project. I forget what it's called, but sort of the idea is that 
rather than looking for just like, oh, this is a successful exploitation attempt, but rather basically building in detailed application logs that are sort of indicators of strange behavior. Um, So say, for example, you have this person is trying to access this object ID, but like that object ID is not owned by that user. So like, they're never presented at the same time within the application. So like, if somebody is doing that, clearly, they're like, manually sending something with burp suite or like fiddling with the URL or something, or you could imagine application level behavior that in normal, I guess, non-malicious user usage should just never happen. And I think his idea was like logging all these signals, which in themselves are not successful exploitation, but basically collectively you could be like, you know, this person has done these three to five types of things that are like, clearly you shouldn't be doing if you're just clicking around the web app. So like this indicates to us that this is probably a malicious user or at least someone pen testing us so we can take appropriate action on the back end. So I do think there's a lot of room for taking a detection response-esque approach to application logging and building sort of self-protecting apps. But I think that requires probably a bit more thought and work that maybe um, many apps just haven't done yet. But um, I think it's a really cool idea and I would love to see more work in this space. I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> okay, yeah, let me know. We see it fairly often just because teams need to have that accountability because typically, I mean, all the time, the application is the interface to some type of data, right? Personal data, credit card data, health data, whatever it is. And the application can sometimes go bad and go poorly. And that's why, you know, we'd want tools like RTC, right? To help prevent those things from happening. I have a question about just typically what types of vulnerabilities are you seeing RTC typically catch the most or the most rules created for? Like, is it a certain type? I mean, I'd assume something like RCE, something similar, but, or some types of an injection attacks, or could you talk a little bit about the most commonly seen ones with those rules? Sure. Yeah. So we look for just like standard OWASP top 10 type things. So yeah, injections such as um, like cross-site scripting, SQL injection, or server-side request forgery, or you know, command injection, or code execution, or things like that. Generally, I guess, when attacker input goes to some sort of dangerous sync location, whether that's an unparameterized SQL query or something that's not output encoded, leading to XSS or something like that. Yeah, we have also focused a bit on what are, say, unsafe programming practices. Not necessarily this is vulnerable, but so we've been trying to lean into like, hey, you're you're not doing output encoding here, so you're potentially vulnerable to cross-site scripting. Maybe not now, but if your code paths change in the future, with sort of the idea being like, if you can remove all of the potentially exploitable conditions, then you're just by definition safe. So sort of like this sort of secure defaults or secure guardrails approach. But yeah, in terms of like issues that is most prevalent to occur, I'd say just like standard OWASP type issues. That's awesome. So what are you most excited about with application security developments besides SEMGRAP and RTC? What else are you really excited about that's happening in the industry that could be really useful for security teams? Yeah, for sure. I think one that I I believe I heard on your um, podcast when you were talking with Flea is security teams viewing development teams as their customers. So having like sort of a customer-centric security team. So rather than being this, you know, separate crotchety Gandalf-esque figure who's just saying like, you know, you shall not do like whatever you're doing, which they're trying to do to like, you know, make the business succeed. But but rather being like, okay, cool, like engineering teams, you need to get something done. How can we support you do that easy, faster, but also more safely? So I think that sort of shift in tone um, 
it's not necessarily new. I think it's been happening the past maybe five or so years in some companies more than others, but definitely, I think, meaningfully different than maybe early 2000s. So that's one thing I think is cool, a shift from trying to find all the vulnerabilities to more security engineering, like building systems. I think that's been a great trend. And then we've talked about this a little bit already, but sort of shifting from focusing on finding all of the bugs to sort of secure defaults or as Netflix likes to call it, building a paved road, right? So how can we make the easy default way extremely safe, ideally just like almost making security orthogonal to development? Like here's these primitives that we provided for you. If you're going to talk to the other systems in our environment, just use this MTLS library and like everything happens for you behind the scenes and like, don't worry about it. So those are a couple of things. I think, yeah, how do we help support engineering? And then how do we make security easy and transparent for everyone? I think these are very promising. Absolutely agree. So Clint, just to wrap up for today, I have one final question. And that is, uh, what are three pieces of advice you'd give to security professionals listening today that are looking to succeed in in application security at scale in the future? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a good question. There's many things, but I'll try to have a few pithy ones perhaps. So I guess, as I talked about a moment ago, lean into building, not breaking. So understanding how developers in your company write software, how CICD works, like you don't want to make their processes significantly slower or worse. And obviously, when you're building, like writing software, those security benefits you're getting are just more scalable, right? Because they're not tied to your person time. Second, I would focus on eliminating vulnerability classes rather than doing sort of one-off bug hunting. One way it's common to do that is like, how can we build security controls and properties into the libraries and infrastructures and processes that developers just are already using? And when you're doing that, I would one helpful frame of reference is how can I maximize the security ROI of what I'm about to build versus the toil? So toil being sort of operational continuous work. So maybe it's not even the biggest, most important thing to your company, but maybe there's some subclass of a problem that like you can totally automate and some other problem that's like, well, like 50% of the time we're going to have to like do an investigation. So just knocking off the things that like are infinitely scalable is useful. And then lastly, I guess I'll just repeat, I think leaning into secure defaults and guardrails is how I see pretty much every, what I would be sort of modern security team doing. You know, how can we make it easy to do the secure thing? How can we make it obvious and extensive documentation whatever starter repos developers use to spin up a new microservice, for example, just make sure security easy, transparent everywhere. Awesome. That's great advice. Thank you so much. And um, to learn a little bit more about RTC, you can go to rtc.dev. To learn more about Clint's newsletter, you can go to tldrsec.com. And Clint, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciated it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io, to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.